So this time I'll interview Bill. <laughs> Welcome. Sure I want that. <laughs> Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. I'm Paul Geesting, and I'm joined by my friend Bill Schmidt. Uh, we're still uh, broadcasting, so to speak, here from the uh, Hesburgh Library at the University of Notre Dame. It's a beautiful August day. It's a very cool August here in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed yeah. it downstate where I'm from as well. Um, it's a it's a very cool and pleasant uh, sort of day. I understand it's not been that way in London. I've been listening to uh, some uh, some podcasts from uh, people in London. Yeah. The Nature podcast I listened to, and they were commenting on a heat wave in London. And, of course, they were talking about climate change in that uh, context. Indeed. Um, yeah, that's... But that's... Uh, yeah, That's another, another point for another time. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're here talking about science and faith and philosophy and all the things that uh, might come if you put them in a, in a room and let them uh, build build <laughs> themselves into something more interesting than the sum of their parts. <laughs> and uh, the fact that uh, uh, everything is connected to everything else uh, that that arises from our conversations, from just our presence here at uh, a major. Uh, university that uh, that strives to see the interconnectedness. I liked what you were saying last time about the need to um, uh, and, and Steno's realization that uh, there was a value in uh, finding a golden mean, mm -hmm. uh, especially during a time of of chaos. Uh, he was uh, both priest and geologist and uh, striving to uh, ask a lot of different questions, but also. Uh, come to some answers that were both rooted in the old, but also very much looking forward. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking that uh, just uh, for a few minutes, we could maybe take a little bit of a tangent, uh, something we've been uh, talking about uh, offline, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, is the the, uh, the uh, church uh, uh, scandal that, that's been hitting the headlines in the last few weeks, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly anybody interested in uh, religion would be would be interested in that, and one of our goals uh, in this uh, podcast series is to see how uh, the wisdom of the old and the new can help us to understand all the things that are changing and to to find some new perspectives that, that actually solve problems. And we've got some problems uh, right now, right? Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right Paul? Yeah, I mean, the, the point of departure you, we, we might take from uh, what we were talking about last time, um, you know, Nicholas Steno, who is blessed Nicholas Steno, huh. because of his saintly life, right. um, and is one of that classic group of bishops who, frankly, went against the flow. And that's, you know, a perspective that, I would, I think we need to take to the crisis that we have is that in some ways we in the early 21st century, although we bemoan the, uh, the, you know, people departing from the, uh, organized and visible practice of their faith, which is something, you know, admittedly worth bemoaning. Right. Um, we have, we also have blessings and we have a lack of certain kinds of scandal that previous generations had to deal with every day. Ah. And I think to some extent we're seeing that crop up on the surface. Uh -huh. And we need more people like Nicholas Steno in the, in the episcopate. And we also need to decide, you know, what we do, what we do as lay people and how that and how this affects, you know, and, and talking about because after all, there is an apologetic side to what we're talking about. Uh, um, uh -huh. I mean, certainly I come at it and, you know, I've made we've made no secret of the fact that we are Catholic. Yes. And, and our our understanding of things is that there really isn't at, at bottom uh, a contradiction in being both Catholic and a believer in, you know, <laughs> that. Creatures have evolved over the history of the Earth, right? And that you know the Earth is only a certain age, right? right? And that that age is somewhat older than what you would get by a sort of you know facile reading of Scripture. That there there are in fact holes that Scripture never you know intended to fill, and things like that. That there that there are you know, and the point of the podcast is not to just sort of say that, which a lot of people will say on a sort of superficial level that there's no conflict between faith and science. We really do want to kind of get into some of the the sticky areas where, you know, there's some, you know, what exactly do we mean? Yeah. What you know, what exactly how do you read the Bible? I mean, I would certainly say my 
you know that that's a goal that I would have for the podcast going on down the line is is to is to get into more of those issues. I mean, that's we, interesting. we've talked yeah. about some of them with a, you know, the idea of the human soul. How can that if you know since since we have physics, isn't the world just you know sort of causally closed and there's no room to talk about you know ghosts in the machine or crap like that? Right. Uh, that that's that those are those are serious questions that we've already started to deal with, and so these are we're going off in a different direction, and of course we're going to I hope continue with this arc talking about geology for the next uh, several podcasts. Good, right. But for today, as a, as a as a point of departure, I almost would like to interview you a little bit, Bill, because you're a a disciplined you know educated professional news provider, and therefore uh, you would read the news with a little bit more insight than I would expect myself to read the news. And, you know, I have also been really out of the loop in certain senses because of, you know, simply consulting work oh, that I've been busy, doing. Yeah. And I've, been, and I've been editing a book and, and actually have just uh, sent it over to a critique partner just yesterday morning. Yeah. So my understanding, let, let me lay out, you know, the two-sentence version of word of my understanding. And then you may maybe, you know, fill out the thumbnail sketch a little bit, you know, since we don't have a ton of time here. Right. Um, my understanding is, first of all, there's the whole scandal around Cardinal McCarrick. Yeah. That he has been engaged in, you know, at, at all stages of his career in, you know, as a seminary what, professor. Was he a rector at one point? Yeah. Uh, See, this is what I don't know. I don't oh, know well. these details. But anyway, from 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 Simply you know basically one end of his career, yeah, from, the car, uh, time not too long after he was ordained, all the way up to relatively I don't know how recent. Um, there have been these incidents that have never been followed up on. Yeah. And then there is the grand jury investigation into. And again, I don't know. Is it a single diocese in Pennsylvania? Is it all the dioceses in Pennsylvania? Uh, about, uh, does it, how far back does it go? I've heard dioceses. as far back as seventy years. Yes, yes. Um, and that it's dredged up. I've heard a number of three hundred priests or something like yes, that in yes. that in that dragnet. Right. So that's what I understand that there's been, and that and that of course would be talking about that the church has been, you know, rather than doing what we now recognize to be the right thing to do, which is to get people out of. Ministry where they would have any contact with the type of people that they were exploiting. Yeah. Um, that the other things were done. Yeah. Inappropriate things, you know, wrong things, and not only not only mistaken but wrong, and not only wrong but mistaken. Um, both classes of things, and that and it all went all went on under the surface, out of the light. Yeah. It, so <laughs> it sounds like we're in a, a situation of chaos, not too different from the 17th century that gosh, you were describing, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and of course, maybe we always are. Maybe that's just the the state of the world that there's always uh, chaos because there's always uh, change, and uh, there uh, so many things in this uh, church crisis are being kind of uh, mingled together. That it's just. Uh, an accident of timing, perhaps, mm-hmm. and we've talked about these accidents of timing in previous episodes too. But in 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 the case of the news, you had the, all of this uh, uh, Pennsylvania information kind of coincide with the McCarrick information, and then information from Chile and information from the uh, from Honduras, etc. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it's all and yeah. it's all coming together. And it's uh, boy, talk about. Uh, well, and Ireland had it hit the uh, fan yes. not too long ago. Exactly. And that, yes. and that huge change in culture in Ireland where, you know, this is like the final bastion of sort of old school Catholicism and has just absolutely fallen into complete shambles. Yes. And how ironic that, uh, you know, the meeting of the uh, family, it's a, it's a church <laughs> gathering uh, on the Ironic family slash now. Ironic very pointed choice. Uh, yes. Right now yeah. in Ireland that's happening and all of it has uh, is being addressed there, I'm sure, in, in some way. And Cardinal Whirl had to excuse himself from being a major participant yeah. there because he's caught up in it. Yeah. So everybody is looking for uh, different answers. And we're, we're not quite sure what the context is for piecing together all the, the all the information. There, there's, there's more context than we can seem to integrate uh, right. at, at the moment right and uh, so I can I, so it, uh, our our discussions in the past helped me to see that uh, that this is not uh, new that this is that we've seen this before and we'll see it again 
And of course, that also gives reason for hope that uh, amidst uh, the chaos, there's going to be some resort to uh, things that have worked in the past, also some knowledge gained from things that obviously have not worked, worked in, the in the past. Yes, yeah. And then also maybe some new vision of the future that's uh, not really all that new, mm-hmm. but still new in practice and perhaps new in form. And uh, and so the, all creation is crying out for... Uh, for a, a new day of uh, of, of change, uh, but I'd, I'd I'd be interested in how you see the connection between the the chaos of today and uh, the chaos that folks like uh, uh, Nicholas Steno um, faced that they would have confronted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's the. Yeah, I mean, the 17th century is, has, has always been, to me, one of the most depressing, you know, reads of all human history. Yeah. It's the Thirty Years' War, and, you know, people have solidified themselves into these rival camps that, you know, the body of Christ has been, you know, split and, in fact, shattered into all of these small pieces. And people are very caught up in, you know, accusing themselves, accusing one another of you know, whatever it is, not being sufficiently, you know, not, and, and marking their devotion to, to Christ and to God's will by very external statements of faith rather than, you know, change of heart or attitude toward yeah. the world and each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a, that's an element of context yeah. uh, that often gets lost when we're looking at, uh, you know, discipline by discipline context uh, the, the context of the human right. uh, soul, the human uh, heart, uh, human nature. Yeah. Uh, that's a very crucial part of all of these uh, discussions and developments. Yeah. Well, that's why those of us here at the beginning of the third millennium, there, there are people like us who have to engage in this attempt to somehow patch up this divide. Yeah. And those of you not uh, watching the video feed, that's a joke, by the way. There's no <laughs> video feed. Um, We're didn't get to see my air truly. quotes there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know, the divide between faith and science. Right. Um, it's a divide between, I mean, Chesterton was just right. Darwin uh-huh. was just right. It's a divide between people who have their own self-satisfied, smug, very superficial view of the Bible and people who have their own very self-satisfied, smug, superficial view of the world around them, right. which they, you know, the world that science has unlaid has rolled out for us is not a complete finished picture. No, by no means. That's the problem. Is that the the points have gotten dense enough, in a, in a, to to use a metaphor here, the points on the picture have gotten dense enough that people can stand back like one of those Pontalus paintings, or for that matter, <laughs> like your computer screen. Uh huh. Um, and people can imagine it as a, you know, a full image. It's not. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, it's, like an, it's like an atom. Most of it's empty space. Well said. That's and, right. Um, yeah, you, we think uh, we're the masters of the universe and yeah. have all the information we yeah. need at yeah. at our fingertips. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, but the book was fabulous because redoubling. it talks about all of those uh, ideas that people were throwing around in the late 17th century and how easily people could convince themselves, and of course this is human, people in the centuries before, people in the centuries since, how easily they could convince themselves that whatever just sounded good to them was the truth. Yeah. I mean... But and this is and this is not even Cutler saying that. This is Cutler drawing a quotation from I forget which contemporary of Steno's or you know immediate. You know, I think this was in the period at the end of his book, which is the most interesting part of the book, where he's he's really sort of covering how Steno's ideas fared in the battleground of ideas after his death. Um, but that's you know yeah the, all these you know these crazy ideas of you know seminal forces and things like that. that yeah. Could create shells from rock in the middle of a mountain, you know, rather than having a living being doing it. Um, but it the times we like, could say they were wrong, right? And and it sounded so good to them. It just yeah. to the to those people, it just it made enough sense. Yes. So so it sounds like relativism was alive and well even back then. Oh, Perhaps it has always been. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, Pope Benedict mentioned of the tyranny or dictatorship of. 
relativism uh, is a very good watchword for today, but, and, and perhaps it, uh, there were times when it was yeah. less tyrannical back then. We have to be careful, no though, to... I, mean, yeah. I think what it is is that it's always here, it's always tyrannical, That's interesting. and it's yes. always false, because what people really believe is that my opinion is the truth. Yes. They may clothe it with, you know... I mean, relativism, at least, they've attempted to put some sort of theoretical camouflage around the idea that they yes. believe that their own opinion is the truth. Right. But nevertheless, that's what they actually believe. Yeah. I mean, people who espouse uh, multiculturalism, I mean, to be brutally honest, right. I think a lot of it goes on with that. You know, yes. I, you know, I, my perspective on multiculturalism, there really is a lot to learn if I look at what other, like, what do they actually say? Yeah. But I don't think people so, actually care. They just no, want the, they just want the window dressing of multiculturalism. Exactly. And then exactly. they want to really believe their own, you know, progressive Western contemporary mindset. Yes. We or what have be, you. We claim to be taking in all of this information, and really but we not. still have our favorite batches of information. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. where we, where we stand depends on where we sit. I learned in uh, in uh, uh, graduate school, uh, and uh, and that's probably true of science, uh, uh, true of religion, true of the the current crisis, and we have to somehow start finding more middle grounds, yeah. those golden means, yeah. and uh, we can we can discuss that further. Yes. Well, this is Paul recording an addendum to episode 23 of That So Second Millennium. Bill and I were pretty time-constrained there at the end, as you could tell. Uh, We had some things we wanted to get to, but didn't have the time. I wanted to record a little bit more here at the end of the episode about the clerical sex abuse scandal. And to start off with, I doubt this is much of a problem, for people listening to this podcast, but it's worth mentioning the point that, you know, we understand that the scandal is not a logical, it's, it's not logically mandatory to, uh, reject the testimony of faith on the basis of the misbehavior of people in positions of influence within the church's structure. We all probably understand that. Um, but of course, it's still a problem, and people are almost certainly going to be scandalized and leave the church. And it is a problem, um, in at least an indirect sense, for the faith directly. If these men, so, you know, people who've risen all the way to positions of tremendous influence in the church, um, which is theoretically about teaching a completely different way of life, which it most emphatically is, um, explicitly several places, especially in the New Testament, uh, Paul and others comment on the complete inadmissibility of specifically the abuse of youths, of post-pubescent boys and young men by older men. Um, that's a specific, of course, we know that was That was a behavior in the Greco-Roman world, um, and actually the rest of the Mediterranean world as well. Um, As I recall, even Muhammad rails against that from time to time. So we, you know, we all know that that's, that's terrible, and that's completely inconsistent with Christianity. Um, But these men have been given positions of trust within the church, and if these men can't live up or if won't or can't live up, that's the real question. Is it that they can't live up to the standards? Are these standards too high? Is there simply no power present within Christianity that could avoid this? I mean, that is, after all, how Christianity got started. It didn't start out as a political movement that quickly amassed a certain amount of power and then started rolling. It started as an undercurrent, an underworld Really, an underworld phenomenon. Um, almost, you know, well, literally an underworld phenomenon in the case of the catacombs, is it not? Um, it's strange how fitting that is now that you, I finally, you know, <laughs> think to use the word in that context. Um, why did it grow? How could it possibly have convinced, and especially with this really strict morality that it espouses, uh, how did it possibly grow? Um, 
well, it had to have the power to convince people that their lives were better, and plus, you know, whatever miraculous events were actually happening, things that really were testimony that the, there was something beyond the human present in this teaching. That's at least what those of us within the pale, those of us who adhere to the faith, all of us, you know, who really take it at all seriously, have to believe that there was something not only powerful, but almost supernatural, well, not almost supernaturally powerful about it. Why could this supernatural power not prevent this from happening? And especially in this particular situation, even laying aside the question of evil in general, even admitting that there's a solution to that, how is it that these people could not live up to the standards of, I mean, not just the high Christian moral standards, but, you know, common morality at all? Almost anyone would recognize that this is, these are crimes that deserve severe punishment. So, it's worth taking a little time to explore at least some sense of how that might have happened. And, uh, for better or worse, you're going to hear mine. So, <laughs> my idea. So, we're, my reading of history, and, and, you know, I've, I've talked about this a little bit. My, my reading of the history of the church and of the West, um, as Hilaire Bellick would like to remind you that Europe is the faith, the faith is Europe and Europe is the faith. Uh, I disagree with the first, but uh, I agree with the second. Europe is the faith at this point. Nothing, nothing present in European culture has not been channeled through the medieval era of not only Christianity, but Catholic Christianity. And the church occasionally in the last uh, few decades, especially Pope Benedict, has gone to some uh, length to restate and reinforce this claim from time to time, not that not many people have listened to him. In any case, so there is this medieval model, and of course it was both good and bad, um, that Europe is in rebellion, Europe in particular, is to this day in rebellion against the medieval model of the church. And that, and that rebellion has gone through many historical stages by this point. Um, so of course the medieval model includes bishops and prelates as, you know, uh, not just bishops, but also the abbots of monasteries and people like that, uh, the superiors even of uh, large uh, female orders. Um, so those were wealthy, political, uh, powerful political figures. And that by itself is in great tension uh, with the New Testament. The New Testament is not fond of the rich. This Jesus of Nazareth guy did not have a great deal of good to say about wealthy people or being wealthy. Um, and in particular, of course, there is the direct saying, the love of money is the root of all evil. So, and this is, of course, not a secret. You know, the people in the medieval era recognize this tension, recognize that people entered the clergy and sought high clerical office for gain and would, you know, throughout history, not only, of course, engage in um, illicit affairs with women, but also would engage in illicit affairs with boys. This is not a new phenomenon either. Um, so... So that's, that's the medieval model. And of course, that was broken up by the Reformation. That was, and then of course, beyond the Reformation, that was just the first of a long series of dominoes. And in the 18th century in particular, the movement toward atheism picked up steam, what we call the Enlightenment, which is in some cases a valid thing to call it, and in some cases really not. Once the Enlightenment leads us to the French Revolution, the French Revolution leads us to a great many things, including Marxism, which is a violent attack on the moneyed, corrupt uh, order of society, which, of course, unfortunately, given its completely atheist bent, um, is incapable of answering man's spiritual needs and results in just a different kind of tyranny, as we've, you know, the 20th century was one long experiment in that. So, nevertheless, so, so we have this ongoing movement in the culture. The, the external culture outside the church is rebelling against everything it learned from the medieval church. And the medieval church probably had its priorities wrong in a number of ways. One of which is, arguably, especially for those of us who adhere to 
who believed that uh, Pope John Paul II, Carol Latila, was on to something with his theology of the body and that sex is intrinsically a good and beautiful thing in its proper sphere, that's arguably a difficult, not impossible, hardly impossible, but a difficult thing to find the prop, find that much reinforcement for in, in the medieval or even the late antique era of the church fathers. Um, that was, that was a direction, you know, the, the medieval church arguably valued celibacy, virginity, um, and for that matter, fasting and other, uh, mortification sort of in itself, as opposed to done out of a motivation of charity. I mean, it's, it's not as if there wasn't a recognition that you should do these things out of charity, but nevertheless, there is a tension there, and that tension was, there, there was, there was a difference between, you know, the theoretical recognition that charity is the foundation and this, this emphasis on, as it were, impressing people by one's aesthetic practice, aesthetic, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, aesthetic practice, not aesthetic. Uh, although those are two awfully difficult words to distinguish in verbal form. So in any case, all right, so the so the modern era is in rebellion against this overemphasis on just being harsh on oneself. That's fair. Um and in fact, yeah, the medieval church, you know, the the medieval outlook on that needed to be dialed back. On the other hand, of course, what do human beings do but they go in the opposite direction. And we have completed, I hope we've completed. I don't know how much further we could possibly go. Um hopefully we've completed a swing in the other direction toward completely letting ourselves go and convincing ourselves that almost any pleasure we feel the desire to experience is legitimate and all right for us. And that, so that intellectual current, if you're entering, if you're a a cleric who still is adhering, even in the 19th and 20th century, to this, to a sort of fallen, half-ruined, but still recognizably medieval model, and that would include things, you know, a lot of things we associate with clericalism understood as a negative feature of Catholic society, where we sort of look to priests as, priests and especially bishops and cardinals, as authorities on all sorts of matters beyond simply theology or church order, church administration, the things that they actually are educated to do. And we think of them as the wise people in general in our society and accord them a certain amount of influence and deference, um, which of course, accepting that their, you know, their education and experience and knowledge about spiritual matters would make it reasonable for them to receive deference. On the other hand, to give them greater deference and to treat them as superhuman in some sense is a rather foolish thing to do. And there is still, there's still the residue of that. There's still a little bit of that. Um, that hasn't completely fallen away. And that, you know, all the way through the sixties would allow certain people to become sort of, you know, become priests as sort of a cultural you know, desire to become a big shot in some sense. And people who enter the clergy in a time, you know, in the 20th century, when the freight train, <laughs> the freight train of sexual, quote, liberation, which is, of course, sexual enslavement, you know, the convincing ourselves that we need sex the way that we need eating or sleeping, um, a sort of myth that we've convinced ourselves of, very much like the myths that we've convinced ourselves of that we need consumer goods or hour-long automobile commutes or 3,000-square-foot houses and so on down the line. We've convinced ourselves that we need a great many things. And, of course, the media and the the advent of new forms of media plays a great deal of uh, importance in that, the multiplication of forms of advertising. In any case, we've convinced ourselves we need sex along with all these other things that we really don't. They aren't individual needs. Um, but that is, but that's the noise that you hear. You know, that's, it's going on mostly below the surface, but it's implicit in the way society is set up. I mean, and of course, in particular, it's implicit in the omnipresent 
um, nature of pornography in modern society and has been since, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, we went through a phase in the 70s where pornography almost became mainstream cinema. Um, it almost, you know, just went right over the edge to do that. And we drew back and now we have it in other forms. We have, you know, however much on the internet that we can possibly, possibly want. And it's, a, it's, I mean, it's addictive, just like our, our desires for other consumer goods. And I say that in a very meaningful sense. I know what addiction is. <laughs> I, 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 I know what I mean when I say addictive or addictive process. Uh, for reasons I won't go into complete detail, I'll leave that for the listener to uh, reason out. But, so people who go- enter the priesthood uh, for this idea of being a cultural big shot, for being an influence on other people, um, and who never grow out of that, because of course, you know, we do a great many things in our lives for the wrong reasons, and we can grow into doing them for the right reasons. We can do that with all sorts of things. But, if you don't grow out of that, if you go the direction of a Theodore McCarrick or someone like that, um, you, you're going to bend in that uh, cultural wind and you're going to go down one of two paths. So there are problems with both what we would call, we, ne- we call today the liberal or progressive side of modern culture and the conservative side as well. There are, in, there are deep problems on both sides. And of course I was brought up on the conservative side. You could probably guess that. Um, Although I certainly straddle, you know, there are a great many things that I find most unconvincing about people who are further out on the, quote, conservative side of, uh, or the traditional, of course, we, we say that in Catholicism as well, the trad, even, you have, a, have to have a shorthand for it, we use it so often, Um Anyway, so what are the problems? You know, broadly, I've already outlined the problems on the liberal side, right? You reject the testimony of history. You bend the bow too far the other direction. You reject medieval church and its emphasis on ascetic practice and rejecting, identifying desires that we have that are wrong and rejecting them. Um, You abandon that. You go off and you are then seduced by modern culture, convinced that you can't possibly actually deal with this uh, vow of celibacy or promise of celibacy that you've taken, and you find ways out. And again, in a very literally addictive process, you find yourself doing things like uh, whether it's whether it's child abuse or the abuse of youths, young men or young women above the age of puberty, uh, whatever whatever that thing is that you you know you drift into and become enslaved by. Um, so there's that side. So what's the problem on the conservative side? Well, the problem on the conservative side is that you profess stricter ideals. And of course, to some degree, you probably share the medieval overemphasis on not doing bad things or not consuming things and on being harsh on yourself as a measure of, but then you abandon it because you have no strength to do that. Why do you have no strength to do that? Well, in my case, I don't know how common this is, but I can testify on my side that you're cut off from the real God, which that, that all that uh, chatter about God is love, that's real. That's meaningful. And again, to talk about addiction just a little bit more, if you've ever heard of the 12 steps, let's start with the first two. The first step is that to acknowledge that you're powerless over whatever it is you're addicted to. You're addicted to alcohol or to sexual activity of whatever kind, be it pornography, or going to rest areas on the interstate and picking up other men or whatever it is. Um, between those two extremes, outside, you know, off on other axes, whatever it is, picking up prostitutes, um, or just good old, or just the good old unmentionable M word. Uh, all of those things are things you've convinced, you've used to manage your life. And you can't use those to manage your life. Ultimately, you're trying to fill what we recognize as a God-sized hole in ourselves. And it doesn't work. You go off the edge, and you start using these things more and more and more. They can't give you what you need. It's rather like a supernova. You know how a supernova uh, goes? 
So you, you fuse, a star fuses hydrogen for a while, and if it's a big enough star, it can start fusing helium. If it's a big enough star, it can start fusing helium into carbon and oxygen. From there up into silicon and sulfur. And eventually you make it all the way up to iron. Well, every step of the way up to iron, you get some energy out of the process. But you're, you know, going to more and more extreme temperatures. You have to crush yourself under higher and higher uh, heat and pressure. Well, eventually, once you start trying to fuse iron, the party's over. Because iron is the minimum, the nuclear energy minimum on the periodic table. If you start trying to go past iron, you start consuming energy. And so the star, this massive star, starts to contract. Because fusing iron to other elements consumes energy. And that allows the star to collapse on itself. The thermal energy that's been holding the star up, you know, the nucleons flying around in these uh, hundreds or billion, hundreds of millions or billions of degrees, I don't know off the top of my head, you lose the ability, you know, it, it's no longer being supported. That energy is now being consumed, and the star collapses until the neutrons bounce off of each other. You know, you go to neutron degeneracy. The electrons are crushed into the protons. They all become neutrons. And then the star bounces off the mere brute, physical fact that two neutrons can't occupy the same quantum state, or we could sort of loosely say they can't occupy the same space, and the star bounces off of that. Bounces. That's called a supernova. That's a massive explosion that transcends the thermonuclear. It's, uh, in a tiny, tiny way, that's what happens when an addict hits bottom. You've been using this game, you've been playing this game, you've been using something to manage your life until you can't manage it anymore. Um, because you could never manage it at all, but you never really realized that. And you bounce off of something. Some, you hit some bottom. Um, at least that's often the way that it happens. It doesn't absolutely always happen that way. It actually didn't happen that way for me. Uh, I was at bottom. I just kind of glided along rock bottom for quite a while until someone finally showed me the door. Uh, but that's another story for another time. So in any case, you know, we, so this is, we're, we're still talking about the conservative side. You know, you let, you can't, you don't have the strength to turn away from something. You hear the whispers of society and you don't have this confidence in the love of God, which is the second step. So you try to manage your life the way that the only way that you can figure out how, which is what people seem to be doing around you, which is using, in this case, we'll talk about pornography um, as your gateway drug. Pornography, the big M, and then on, if you can't stop there, then you go on to other forms of behavior. You start acting out fantasies in real life, and you go off the edge. So both liberals and conservatives are quite capable of becoming sexual molesters um, and abusing their power and privilege in order to get the drug that they need. So... If What is the second step? What is the beginning of the way out? It's to believe that a power greater than yourself can and will restore you to sanity, or for people like me, bring you to sanity for the first time if you don't know what sanity is like. I'm getting there. I'm climbing out of there. Slowly but surely. In any case, so that's, that's, the, that's the pitfall from the conservative side. You have to be... You have to reach, once again, that Aristotelian mean. You have to be easy enough on yourself and to recognize that, in fact, yes, God does love you. On the other hand, you know, God doesn't love all of the things that you do. And, and as it's often said, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So, well, that's, so that's a, rundown of how I understand these things to happen and why I think the answer is actually a more precise form of Christianity. And I did not, of course, when I sat, sat out to outline this, realize I was going to start talking about the 12 steps. But there it is. Um, I think they're core. I honestly think the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous and everything that sprung from it, Overeaters Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, that exists, uh, and a great many other things. Um, present and future are evidence. I mean, and you look at the 12 steps, um, they are certainly, you know, they are offered to anyone and everyone 
Um, but they're certainly consistent with the teachings of Christianity. They're completely consistent with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, they are, they fit very, very well if you look at it from that paradigm. And they are the evidence, the type of evidence, I think, to circle back. Why did Christianity come into existence in the first place? Because it actually offered people the power to change their lives for the better and to respond to hopes that they perhaps didn't even dare let themselves realize that they had. Um, so there's, of course, an enormous amount of noise going on about the uh, clerical sex abuse crisis, as well there really should be, because it's terrible. Um, so let me close with a few words on a meditation on what do we do about it all. Um, is there a way, you know, for you, dear listener, and for me, uh, to volunteer to help the victims in your diocese? Are you in, or should you get into a position to help change the way that the institutions of the church or, for those of you who aren't Catholic, any other church or organization that you're part of and care about, because if it's long, if it's large enough, old enough, and actually doing, therefore, that much good, it's probably been around long enough and involved enough people that this problem is probably present there, too. Somewhere. Deep within. Um, out of the light. Um, and it may, at that pro, you know, that organization or church probably needs redemption, too. Um, so there is, of course, you know, as a follow-on to our historic discussion, you know, there, though, the way the church is going to function in the future, I pray, I think has to be one where our understanding of clergy has, of the clergy's role in the church and the laity's role in the church has been transformed well beyond the medieval model. Um, that's a, a topic for another time. Um, and I am not the one with the answers to exactly what that will look like, but it will certainly involve you know, moving away from the idea that the clergy are the people, you know, the wise men of our community and that they know everything, they know what there is to know, um, and that they should be, you know, they should be treated as something set apart and different from the rest of us and big shots. That's not, I think, what a lot of men, especially in these latter last few decades, have gotten into the priesthood for, um, and that's a good thing. And we need to, that, that process is going to have to continue toward completion. And that means that we laity are going to have to recognize that we have roles to play within and with outside, especially outside the church, which this is not new stuff. The Second Vatican Council was already talking about this, and it wouldn't have talked about it if that idea wasn't already out there. Um, so in any case, maybe we can do something directly, either about the way the church works that allows abuse like this to be covered up, this this final end, and of course, you know, again, to mention the political divide, we have probably both conservative clerics covering up for conservative clerics and liberal clerics covering up for liberal clerics. There is the dreadful potential for score settling to go on as we, you know, break probably a sort of gentleman's agreement that, you know, I won't bring up, <laughs> that people won't bring up the dirty laundry people on the other side. That's I mean, at this point, hopefully all going to come out and it's going to be ugly and dreadful, uh, but sometimes these things happen. In any case, so, and, and especially if there's something you can do directly, you know, pray about it, think about it. If you feel moved to seek out and find people who have been harmed by sexual abuse, there's probably a way to do it. Think about it. Think about where those people are. Who are they going for help? Where are they going for help? Is there any way you can help those institutions um, and deal with it directly? And of course, I mean, certainly, of course, pray for them. Um, but link prayer and action. Uh, that will make your prayer much more effective as well, I don't doubt. Um, if a frank discernment of your life situation pushes you in a different direction, there are other things for you to do, right? You know, so all of us have something to do. And if, if we are if we are actually Christians, or for that matter, if we're actually adherents of another faith or philosophical tradition that teaches us that we need to do good for other people, this is an opportunity for us to look around and say, am I really doing what I need to be doing? Um, should I do more? Should I do something else? Um, in the uh, in the Latin rite, the modern Latin rite, just last Sunday, yesterday, um, we had the reading from the first chapter of the letter of James, one of my favorite letters of the Bible, my favorite passages. What else can you do? So what is true religion, according to the first letter of James? It's to look after widows and orphans in their need and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. 
right? That's, that's what we actually need. That's the, that's the Aristotelian mean. We need to be focused on the poor, the miserable, the people in pain, the people who need help. But we also need to keep ourselves unspotted by the world because if we don't curb or get the help that we need to curb our desires, um, we're going to go off the edge and using them, though those will displace God and they will take over our lives. Um, to one extent or another, whether it's recognizably addiction or not. And of course, to focus on, you know, take this, take this time to check on what is, what's going on in your life that's the most important that you're not doing. This is a really good time. I mean, you know, no time is a bad time. So this is a particularly good time. Let's look at, okay, the world has been going on and this terrible, you know, this terrible thing has been going on in the world that, that contains many, many other terrible things. Um, even larger terrible things than this, sadly. Wars, rapine, you know, systematic uh, slave enslavement, sexual enslavement, and other kinds of enslavement of people. That still goes on many places in the world, effectively, or even le- legally and literally. Um, what is the good that you want to bring to the world? What is the good that you feel called to bring to the world? What is the good that you see that you're clearly capable of doing or learning to do that would help the world? And then, again, what do you need to weed out in your life in order to focus on that? Again, true religion, to look after widows and orphans in their need, to do good for others, and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. Because if you don't, you're not really going to be able, you know, you won't have the bandwidth to do the good that you want to do. So, of course, I, you know, in my own life, so I have this tension and I'm at a point where I'm asking myself these questions and will be, you know, this very week dealing with questions of, all right, so my work. So I look at my life. I'm not very happy with it. Um, it's uh, pretty easy to say I'm, I'm a failure so far. I have accomplished very little with the gifts that I've been given. Um, at this point, I'm trying to divide time between my consulting, which is not something, frankly, that I do. Uh, I want to do a good job of it, and I recognize that it can do good for people, um, but it's something that isn't something I recognize as particularly my calling. It's something I can do, and it's something I need to do at the moment because I need to do something that people will actually pay me for, for the time being. Then there's my writing, my fiction writing, which is a difficult thing because, well, there are a lot of people who want to write fiction. Maybe my fiction isn't worth reading. I'm not sure. Maybe I can't get to that point. Maybe it's not worth putting in the effort because there's, of course, item three, which is my scholarship, because I can look at my life and clearly recognize uh, there are certain gifts that I've been given in terms of my ability to do uh, mathematics, analysis, reasoning, um, that are not normal and that I probably ought to be doing something with. And I felt my entire life that I ought to be doing something with, but I've mostly been too afraid, um, and burying myself in a variety of, uh, other things, uh, in order to avoid that fear. And then, so, so how do I, how do I divide that up and where do I make time for this, you know, this life of doing good for other people, uh, directly? I mean, I hope that my scholarship, I hope that this podcast is doing good for someone. I hope that this episode of this podcast does good for someone. Um, but there are other things I can do and should do um, that I need to discern. And then, of course, uh, there's there's problems in my own private life um, that I won't. I will I will respect the Browns of propriety and not go into any details about that in this forum. But uh, yeah, uh, I yeah I. I I'm a very uh, troubled person in that uh, regard, and uh, I'm in, in situations that uh, are, are very troubled and that I still have not uh, seen the way out, uh, just just sort of getting by day-to-day, skating on the surface, and not facing, facing the pain of dealing with those either. So, in closing, if... If by some chance this podcast gets into the, it gets into the ears, so to speak, of someone who's a victim of sexual or physical abuse, um, whether it's someone in the Catholic clergy or anyone, um, please, you know, please report it. Um, please report it wherever is most appropriate, um, which definitely includes law enforcement. Um, don't protect the people who abused you, you know, get, get clarity, talk to someone. 
and listen to what they say. Uh, if you're in that situation where, you know, of which many people who have been abused get into of protecting people who've abused them and made their lives miserable, um, please report it and please look for help. And please know that there are places you can get help, depending on what the effects of the abuse have been on you. That may include a 12-step program. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, of course, at the outset, that sounds terrible because 12-step programs are for life. Uh, whether if you're, for example, an alcoholic, um, and you know when you enter that AA room and realize you belong, that you're going to be going there for the rest of your life or else you're going to go back out there and become an active alcoholic again. You know that. Um, but that's a place where you can do a lot of good as well. And that's a place where you can find healing. And you'll know, and you will have lived through something that, you know, again, if you're a Christian, you understand that this Jesus of Nazareth guy went through an awful lot of pain. Um, and for him, and for him to come to you and heal you, um, recognizing that the pain you've gone through in your life makes you more like him in some way. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's all I had to say about that. Um, have any uh, questions or if there's anything that, uh, <laughs> any debate, uh, whether, uh, whether that, whether I've infuriated you or terrified you, um, or if there's the slightest bit of curiosity that you have about, um, where you can get help that in some way I could help you with, um, I would be most honored to do that. So you can get a hold of me, um, at the podcast website. You can find ways to contact me. There's also a Facebook page, but the podcast website, uh, tssm.podbean.com or that's their second millennium on Facebook. Uh, so yeah, whatever, whatever feedback you have, uh, we're really interested in hearing and, uh, and I, you know, very literally mean may you be blessed and may you find what you're looking for in life. And hopefully this life uh, is not just the one that we're currently living. <laughs>